Hello and welcome to Talk for Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. Today's episode is more for the Australian listeners of this podcast. As many of you might have seen in the news over the past few years, Australia has slowly but surely been regressing at the hands of our current conservative coalition government. We are now at the bottom of the UN climate action ladder. Our emissions per capita are among the highest in the world. Our universities have been gutted. And of course, the brilliant start we had at the beginning of the pandemic has all but been lost with lagging vaccination rates and a prime minister who for months said getting the population vaccinated wasn't a race when we all knew that it was. And what I've said doesn't even cover the corruption we've seen over the years. Usually when you've got a government like this, the opposition doesn't have to work too hard to look like the obvious choice to most people. However, that doesn't seem to be the case for me. While they'd be no doubt better, their climate ambitions and actions are lacking, and they don't provide a hopeful vision for the future of Australia either. However, I recently came across a new small party known as the New Liberals that are looking to reclaim the word liberal that has been so tarnished by the current government in power. Looking at the policies, I was pleased to see that they were quite reasonable and progressive. They've also been getting a bit of traction recently, especially off of the back of a bill that's been introduced by the current government that would let established parties veto the use of words like liberal or democrats in the names of newer, rival parties, while also tripling the numbers of party members necessary to either register a party or remain registered to 1,500. This has seen the New Liberals' membership numbers shoot up to over 2,000 at the time of recording, but this conversation was recorded just before this actually happened. So. Given all of this, I reached out to the party leader, Victor Klein, to have a chat and see what sort of vision he and his colleagues have for the future of Australia. A bit about Victor, he is a Sydney-based barrister specialising in the area of refugee and asylum seeker law. He is the founder and director of the Refugee Law Project, as well as editor of the Federal Court Reports and Federal Law Reports. In our conversation, we cover the need for an independent commission against corruption with teeth, the moral crisis of our immigration policies and some potential solutions. Australia's vast potential as an energy superpower, brain drain, the crippling of Australian universities, and getting back on track to becoming the smart country, the plans the new liberals have and the challenges they face, and why climate inaction is actually un-Australian. Just a quick note, the quality of the conversation isn't on par with some of my other episodes, as we had to do a quick switch to Zoom because the other platform I usually use just wasn't really working. But don't worry, uh, it is still very listenable. And without further ado, here is my conversation with the leader of the New Liberals in Australia, Victor Klein. All right, well, uh, Victor, it's great to be joined uh, by you here today. I hadn't really heard about the the New Liberal Party up until relatively recently. It just uh, popped up on my Twitter feed uh, somewhere, and I checked mm. out some of what you were uh, some some of what you were saying and some of the tweets from the New Liberal Party, and I was thinking oh, wow, this is actually really refreshing. You don't really see these sorts of things <laughs> coming you. from you know, political parties in Australia. But before mm. we dive into the New Liberal Party and what your hopes are and what your vision is for Australia. Uh, well, it's actually, say, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but just because we need to we need to get it right. It's actually called The New Liberals. The New Liberal Party, no, yeah. There's no sorry. And, and that, was, that was deliberate so that there wouldn't be a confusion with the Liberal Party of Australia. So just yeah, sorry. Like, I know that no, sounds no, pedantic, no. but... I just no, I think I, th- I think it's necessary. I think it's necessary. I've got it in here. I should look at my notes a little bit more often. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, but before we get into, I guess, the mm. main meat of the conversation, I would really like to just hear a, a bit about your background and um, how you came to 
start this thing up. So yeah. What, yeah. what was it that led to uh, you deciding to try to get into politics? Well, it's, it is a kind of an interesting story. So the four founders of the party, we're all friends. We've been friends for a long time. And we were sitting around as usual, drinking red wine and bitching about, you know, how corrupt the government is and how ineffectual the opposition is. Uh, and Catherine, who's our president, she said, oh, you know that old saying, somebody should do something about this? Oh, hang on, I am somebody. She said, we are somebodies. And we, I, I, I can still see this, this moment of stunned silence. And we, re, we all knew what she was saying. She was saying that nobody's doing anything about this terrible malaise in Australian politics. So it's more than a malaise. It's a kind of slide into authoritarianism. It's, a, it's, a, it's tomorrow will be the new Argentina kind of thing. Um, and, and we realised she was suggesting that we, we do it. And, you know, none of us has had anything to do with politics. None of us um, has, has ever dreamt of being in politics. But we looked, we looked about and we said, well, you know, we're old enough and ugly enough. Maybe we can, maybe we can do something. So it started out uh, with those modest beginnings. And we, we kind of, we, first of all, we created a charter of core values, which you may have seen on the website. And the idea of that was that politicians, you know, they change their values as often as their shirts, just to, just whatever's necessary to get voted in. Um, and we thought, you know, we will be and look very different if we put up a charter of core values, which is there so that if we deviate from those values, the public can call us out. And more importantly, I suppose we can call one another out. And we set about, we set about to make ourselves as different from the crooks we were trying to replace as we possibly could, because to imitate them in any possible way would destroy what we were trying to bring. Um, so we set ourselves certain, certain rules that we had to follow irrespective of the consequences. So uh, answer a direct question with a direct answer um, uh, and always tell the truth, you know, and, um, oh, and, and always do what we, what we think is right, irrespective of the consequences. And I guess we were comfortable with those rules because we're not careerist politicians. So if we follow those rules, uh, you know, like a lot of people are very cynical and they say, oh, you tell the truth on the media, you'll just get crucified. You know, if you're not willing to be flexible on your core values, you'll get crucified. You know, if you do the, like John Law said to me this morning, you know, I was talking about um, the need to, to change Australia Day to a day that's less troublesome to the First Nations people. And he said, mate, you know, you've got to learn in politics that, that you don't pander to a minority like that. You <laughs> You know, you go for the majority. And I said, that's not our view. Our view is to do the right thing. And I said to him, and I'll say it here, you know, that because we're not career politicians and because we're not seeking power for power's sake, we, we have the luxury of saying, here we are, we're telling the truth, we're doing the right thing. If you, the Australian people, like that, you'll vote us in and we'll be able to do all the wonderful things we want to do. But if all those cynics are right and you don't like it, um, we'll go back to our day jobs. You know, because our, our lives and our livelihoods do not depend on getting into politics. You'd probably know that close to 80% of the current parliament has never had a job outside politics or the unions. They're all career politicians. They've never lived in the real world. And so for them, they have to, they have to make sure they do whatever they need to do, be it a compromise, all, you know, a little compromise all the way up to selling their souls in order to stay in power because that's their job. That's their livelihood. It's not our livelihood, you know. It may become our livelihood if, as we hope, the Australian people 
when given an opportunity for something different, can can seize that and will want to seize that. If not, as I say, back to our day jobs. That's the that's <laughs> that's the process. So that's how it, that's how it started. You know, you know, sorry, you know, in a somewhat long-winded way. Yeah, it just hearing about the. The fact that 80% of politicians have never really had a job outside of uh, politics, it's quite a statistic. You know, you would kind of hope that, you know, exposure to the real world and, you know, the real world is different for everyone who participates in it. But I think having that level of exposure and experiencing what the people experience on a day-to-day basis, at, yeah. to some degree, having, you know, starting a business, dealing with regulations rather than just being somewhat divorced yeah. from it and speaking with, I guess, your colleagues playing this mm. game, like this, this is what I, I wanted to get your mm. take on. I feel that from the outside, and I'm not overly engaged in politics. Um, mm. I've got like a, a, a decent interest in it, but I'm not obsessed with Australian politics. But yeah. from what I see on the news and, you know, on Twitter and elsewhere is this politicking on both sides. And, you know, I'm, I'm just mainly speaking about the, you know, Labour and the, the Liberals at the moment here because yeah. they yeah. don't seem to be, like they appear to be playing a game and it's about scoring points on one another. And there's no, it, it seems like it seems combative and that they're just trying to one up each other and Australians, like our perspectives kind of fall on the wayside. Like we, it, it seems like they aren't as in, they, they are engaged with the people, but in a way to score political points and not to actually outline a, a, a real vision for what the future could look like and how we can get there. I couldn't tell you what our politicians want our country to look like in 10 years. I, I could not tell oh, you. And given oh. the state of where we are in the world today and <laughs> the, the, the Titanic shifts that are occurring, it's not looking too good if we continue on our current course. And, and I'm not just talking about climate change. I'm talking about, you know, our, the nature of our exports and, you know, like the mm. foundations of our industry, like there's big changes going on and you don't hear any of this sort of conversation uh, coming from, no. from both parties. No, I, I totally agree. And, you know, we had uh, one of our candidates, she really wanted to uh, do something for the country. She saw all these problems arising. She didn't know we existed. She joined the Labor Party to see if she could do something. And she was, she was absolutely scandalised. She's a very intelligent woman, you know. And she got to a point where she got an opportunity to talk to their state executive or whoever they were. This was before the last state election. And she said... So that she put the very simple question to them. She said, so if we win this election, how will the government of New South Wales differ under us compared to under the Liberal Party? And they quite shamelessly said to her, wow, oh, won't be that different. They said that to her, you know. <laughs> when you talk about a game and point scoring and stuff, they are completely divorced from not only the real world, but divorced from human nature, you know. <laughs> uh, they just see it as a club or a couple of clubs that are, you know, closely aligned, whatever, whatever happens, you know, they're, they're, they're not turning their mind to the people. If you don't turn your mind to the people, what are you doing there? God. Yeah. And the, um, to try to create change in those places, you need to play the game and to play the game, you kind of have to sell your soul. That's kind of the, the impression that I get. Um, well, it, yeah. Well, the soul selling, particularly on the part of the Labor Party, I don't know if, if you've followed recent developments, but it's it's embarrassing. I mean, as well as beyond embarrassing, it's it's completely tragic. So you've got a party that is claiming to be a progressive party, but when the government passes big tax, wants to pass big tax cuts for major corporations, the Labor Party goes along with it. When they want to block uh, a royal commission into Rupert Murdoch, the Labor Party goes along with it. 
when they want to increase dependence on fossil fuel, the Labor Party goes along. When they want to introduce a horrendous law where certain asylum seekers can, despite the fact that they are they have been proven to be refugees under the International Convention, which we're a signatory. At the whim of the ministers, some of those can be sent back to their death. And if their country won't take them, they'll be put in jail for the rest of their life. The Labor Party signed off on that. Now, they'll point score over nothing. You're quite right. They'll get up in question time. They'll point score over nothing. But all the things that matter to this country, you know, the fact that we've got 3 million people below the poverty line, the fact that, that, that refugees are just innocent people that have committed no crime other than seek asylum in this country are thrown into prison for the rest of their life, that they're all willing to go along with, with the government. And they've got this... They've got this kind of crazy, sick philosophy that says, well, if we do nothing and say nothing and agree with everything the government says, then maybe the people will say to themselves, oh, well, we voted for Morrison last time, but, you know, this party, what's their name, I can't remember, you know, that don't do anything or don't say anything and always agree with the government. Why don't we vote for them this time? You know, it's a philosophy that it's, it's, it's like something out of a Kafka novel, you know, absolutely insane. And the upshot is that we just have... Uh, a boys club in Canberra. And I use the term boys club deliberately um, because it's very, very hard for women in that environment. It's hard to get in. And when they get in, it's hard for them to be treated with respect. You've got this, you've got this boys club, which is run by their major donors and run by the Murdoch media. And the losers are the 99% of Australians who are not given a voice. And I guess that's why we've come along to try and try and remedy that. So I know it's quite early days, but I think I, I would like to hear what sort of uh, vision the new liberals have for uh, what Australia could be like, you know, what, how our politics could function, uh, what our country could look like. So what are some of the, the, the policies or just the general ideas that uh, you've come up with you, you and you know, yeah. everyone else um, to try to <laughs> make things a bit better? Yeah. Well, there's a thousand because <laughs> everything's yeah. bad. Um, and I know that sounds ridiculously pessimistic, but it just happens to be, unfortunately, the truth. And I won't run through all those, but I guess what you'd like to know is, is the key ones. I think the first thing that we want to fix is the corruption in politics. You may know that the Chasers uh, produced a document that listed in excess of 900 occasions where uh, the, the Liberal Party governments in the last seven years have committed immoral, unethical or straight-out illegal acts and they're getting away with it on a daily basis. So what we propose is to introduce a federal ICAC uh, with investigative powers and prosecutorial powers um, that will look at not only politicians but, but judges and bureaucrats because they're the other two arms of government um, who've been corrupt, you know, taken money, uh, under improper circumstance or who've uh, breached their duty or who've um, uh, been in dereliction of their duty and uh, that ICAC will, will, will prosecute those people and there'll be a separate federal court for the prosecution of corrupt practices where a judge and jury will hear that um, and if they're found guilty, they'll be sent to jail. Um, and that will be retrospective because I think one of the, the, the reasons that people are losing faith in our democracy is they, they can't see a way that their vote matters anymore because whoever they vote for, it's all the same, you know. And so we think, and, I, you know, I'm a lawyer, so, so I understand how serious it is to, to introduce in, 
imprisonment and retrospective imprisonment. But unless the public sees that happening, they'll never... You see, the Labor Party has a, a proposal for an ICAC and, as well, but it's just a talking shop. It has no powers. It doesn't do anything. It makes recommendations that, you know, fall behind the filing cabinet, that sort of thing. What we need to do is say to the Australian people, if you vote for us, we will put these crooked bastards behind bars. And if they vote for us, and we do, and they see them go behind bars, then they say, hey, my vote caused this to happen. My vote caused this big change. And then their their faith in democracy will be restored. And then all the other aspects of the the horrible edifice will, will come tumbling down. So I often say that even though our most pressing problem obviously is climate change and we have to address climate change. Tragically, in this country, first, we have to address the corruption because if you don't address the corruption, nobody will ever take action on climate change, you know, because, because the, the, the major parties are locked, both, both major parties are locked in to servicing the fossil fuel industry. So ICAC first, action on climate change, we're, we're proposing net zero emissions by 2035 and a decent water policy um, because the same corrupt politicians have, have passed laws to sell Australian water on the open market to foreign interests uh, with the result and, and allowed foreign corporations to come in and do insane things like try to grow cotton in the desert so that uh, one, one place up there, Cubby Station, has, has a, a dam <laughs> bigger than Sydney Harbour. So, of course, there's no water left in the Darling, no water left in the Murray and Murrumbidgee and towns like Dubbo and Burke have to, have to um, you know, bus in water. I mean, it's in, and the farmers down there are dying, and if they want water, they've got to buy, them back, buy it back from the foreign corporations at twice the price. And then you get this crazy stuff where Barnaby Joyce buys water on behalf of the Australian government from a fellow minister, Angus Taylor, at twice the market price, and Angus sends the stuff, his ill-gotten gains <laughs> offshore so he doesn't even pay tax on it. We've we got to get into that. Um, and then when we've... When we've got those things in place, also, you know, simultaneously, we you don't know, do them sequentially, simultaneously, with, we want to address the fact that 3 million Australians have been pushed below the poverty line. And, you know, these are people of all classes. We met a woman, 50-year-old ex- corporate executive who'd lost her job, um, couldn't get another job, ended up sleeping out of her car, living in her car, and taking showers down at the local beach, cold showers down at the local beach. And she is apparently a representative of tens of thousands of of women and children, particularly, but also men, living out of their cars. So we have a a plan for a a full employment and job guarantee scheme that will mean not a a work for the dole or anything like that, and certainly not compulsory, but a non-compulsory job guarantee scheme that'll be that'll be funded federally and, and, and arranged locally so that all those jobs that local government, NGOs, community organisations depend on for volunteers, they'll become full paid jobs. We'll put people in those jobs and we'll get back to that kind of um, real full employment that Menzies ran in the, in the, in the 50s and 60s. I mean, like 1.2% of the population not in a job and that's because of some sort of geographical mismatch, you know, not as it is now where they claim it's only 5%, but it's, which is bad enough, but it's actually 15% because the other 10% work one hour or two hours a week and get counted in the statistics as fully employed, you know. So 3 million people below the poverty line. And I mean, if 
this kind of neoclassical economics that they practice keeps going. Next year, it'll be 6 million below the poverty line and then 12 million below the poverty line. And at the same time, the top 1% getting richer and richer and richer. And then how, how are we any different from a third world dictatorship, you know? So that's what, they're, the, they're I guess, uh, the three things that we really want to address along with the ICAC. You, you're not going to reduce corruption unless you reform the donation laws because they underpin the corruption. You know, the fossil fuel industry, for example, and others say we will give you $100 million so you can run your campaign and, and con the people with a lot of advertising. And then when you win, uh, you know, you look after our interests. So that's got to go. Um, that's got to become illegal. And the other thing is to make sure that foreign ownership of Australian media is stopped uh, that the cross-media ownership laws are brought back uh, and that, you know, one media mogul doesn't dominate whole cities. You know, if you, if you want to read a newspaper in Brisbane, Adelaide uh, or Hobart, or, and Perth, I think, probably, you have a Murdoch newspaper, that's all you've got, you know, whether it's online or hard copy, that's all you've got. Now, that's got to change. That's got to change because at the moment... Uh, the reason the Labor Party are so disgustingly cowardly um, and ineffectual is because they're terrified that if they make the slightest whisper against what the government's doing, the Murdoch press will come out and crucify them. And we say, you know, bugger the Murdoch press. We're going to get out there and we're going to do what's right. And I, I think their, their, uh, their cowardice is, is not just disgusting because it's cowardice, but it's misplaced, Do you know. If you go out and tell the truth and the Murdoch media hammers you into the ground, people, people are not stupid. They go, well, okay, why are they attacking these, the new liberals? Who are the new liberals? Let's go and look them up, you know. Um, and insofar as that has happened to us, it has happened to us. But it, it brings us members every day, you know. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm diverting into, you know, political in-talk, I suppose. But um, those would be our major positive. We also want to, we also want to create the best public education system in the world and the best medical system in the world and, and, and a defence policy that's designed for the benefit of Australia, not for our, you know, powerful allies. That would be <laughs> that would be the summary of it. I think. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant. I appreciate that. Uh, I'd like to dive into some of those uh, oh. right now. I guess the one that's on front of mind for me is the jobs guarantee, and I think a part of that yeah. there was, there's an increase to security, social security payments as well, because yes, to my knowledge, right, right now. Our like the what we give people who are unemployed, uh, you know, on New Start or Youth Allowance or whatever, it's below the poverty line. Shameful, well below, well below. It's, it's below the poverty, which I think is absolutely disgraceful. It's disgraceful. Yeah, yeah. And no, it, so and it's unnecessary. Why, yeah, yeah, unnecessary, unnecessary, and I think it's counterproductive. And they also put people through such stringent tests to be able to qualify for such payments that you know not not everyone can afford to sit on the phone to settling for six hours to, to have it drop out to, you know, try to, yeah, to, no. try to actually get and humiliating, some, some of- humiliating along the way as well. They get treated like dogs while they're doing it. You know, the reason why I want to talk about that is I'm curious if mm. you and your colleagues have spoken about mm. uh, the feasibility or of a universal basic income, uh, because there's more and more evidence emerging that it's um, not only doable, but that it can actually have um, quite widespread Benefits. So I'm curious about uh, your take on that. Yeah, well, we, we we don't have a universal basic income in our policy because we think 
that we have the best of both worlds, the job guarantee scheme, and what is in fact a universal basic income. Because this is, this is how we structure it. So person wants a job and they go along, uh, there's a big bank of jobs there, uh, or sometimes they don't even have to find, be found a job. Sometimes they go along and say, look, I'm a carer or I'm an artist, um, you know, and I do a full-time job. I'm just not making a living out of it. And we say, sure, you know, they're real jobs and we'll pay you a real wage. Um, Professor Bill Mitchell said, you know, you can even pay a surfer to be a surfer provided, you know, they teach the local kids how to surf and put some productivity into it for the community. So it's only limited by one's imagination. So, so do you uh, mind just unpacking that a little bit? Because that sounds like when yeah. I think of a jobs guarantee, I don't really think about the fact that an artist could, you know, receive a yeah. wage for being an artist. That sounds yes. quite uh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. So, so that's right. So, so what you've got is, you know, so you've got a, you've got a local council and they have a lot of jobs, you know, manual jobs and other jobs that, you know, they can't afford to pay people for. You've got NGOs and, um, community organisations that depend on volunteers that, you know, half the time they can't get a volunteer and then they don't turn up and all that sort of thing. Theatre groups, sporting clubs, you know, all these people need people and we will turn those needs into full-time jobs that will be filled um, and they will be paid They will be paid a good living wage around the median income, so probably $55,000, $57,000 a year. Now, people who can't work... Um, because they're old or they're sick or, or whatever, they will be paid roughly twice um, the, the current rate that they're paid. So they're getting around about 20,000 a year now, they'd get 40,000 a year, which will be pretty much as good as uh, the person who's working, I suppose, because they don't have all the expenses of work. Um, but, so both people will be able to live properly. And then, you know, if people don't want to work, I mean, some advocates of job guarantee schemes say, well, that's their problem and they can bloody starve. Well, we, we don't take that view. We take the view that, you know, you don't want to work, that's your choice, um, but we'll pay you less. We'll pay you less than... So they'd probably be paid around the 25000 so that, you know, they weren't going to starve. But uh, the upshot of all that is that everybody is taken care of and people who want to work get to work. Now, the, the UBI wouldn't be able to wouldn't be able to pay more than about 40000 across the board to everybody. And the problem with that is that people who are not working and who are getting as much as people are working, first of all, from a purely economic point of view, it's not as productive. So if you pay if you pay a dollar to each of those people, yeah, sure, they spend it across the, the economy and it stimulates the economy and that's, that's great. The person who's working, however, also creates goods and services which themselves um, stimulate the economy. So that's better. So to pay the same amount to everybody has economic problems in it. But more importantly, we think the reality is it's a bit like communism in theory is, is you know, the best way to live. In practice, it didn't work because it didn't take into account human nature. And I think if person A is being paid $40,000 to work 40 hours a week and person B, their neighbour, is paid $40,000 to sit on the couch, um, I think person A will get resentful and it'll cause mm. schisms and, and problems within society. So we hope that we've got the best of both worlds in the sense that you want a job, you'll get a job. If you're sick or, or old, you'll be looked after. And if you don't want to 
work, you don't have to work and you'll be paid enough to sit on the couch. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, yep. So I, I, in some ways I'd like to call our, our whole system, uh, I mean, you've gone to the trouble of looking up the various parts in, in job guarantee and social security. I'd like to call it a sort of job guarantee slash UBI, you know, because I think that's what it achieves. Yeah, I think some, some of the outcomes would be similar, uh, yep. very similar, but there are distinctions which I don't think is worth getting into uh, here. But um, I do think... Like one thing that does appeal to me about a UBI is the it's somewhat efficiency because you actually remove the need for a minimum wage and therefore people yeah. can actually work for if I like if a startup could only pay me a dollar because at the very beginning they have no money I could work for them to get to get the skills oh, I could work for McDonald's for an extra ten bucks an hour just to pay for the extra things I might want to get um, I actually think it might be more efficient but this is not a time for the discussion of the economics of, <laughs> okay. of a UBI. Um, there, yeah. I, I, it is something that I'm quite. Oh, certainly, arguments, certainly arguments, certainly arguments both ways. I guess I don't, I don't yeah. want to hold you up on this, but I, I guess what we would say is that you wouldn't have to work for McDonald's for a dollar because our job guarantee scheme would give you fifty-seven thousand from day one. Do you know what I mean? So, but I do look. I acknowledge there's 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 a lot of arguments both ways, and the main thing is. Whichever way we go, we look after the people of Australia and don't leave three million of them behind or next week six million, you know. Yeah. I mean, both systems I think would have their merits and one may be better than another, but at the moment there's absolutely no chance under our current regime that anything like that will be implemented. I mean, Frydenberg, what he, I mean, of all the political things that have annoyed me, I think this annoyed me more than anything else in when. When somebody suggested that you might, as Jacinda Ardern had done, uh, instead of just having a budget, have a welfare budget to make sure that the money was being spent so that the most people got the greatest benefit um, and that people were looked after. And he just laughed, you know. He, he, he didn't even debate it. He just laughed, you know. So under the current regime, none of this is, all this is just fantasy for them, you know. Mm. So now I want to um, come to one of the things that you brought up, um, corruption, uh, and mm. even you could call it legal corruption, you know, uh, donations, political donations, because, mm. you know, mm. like people can get donations mm. and, you know, nothing really mm. efficiently needs to happen, but it's like, hey, I give you, you know, that $10 million, yeah. by the yeah. way, I've got this property yeah. in this electorate, yeah. please um, yeah. help, a, help a brother out. Um, so yeah. I know that you've actually on, on your site, you've, I think listed that, um, all donations above a thousand dollars will be registered publicly. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. And that's, that's what we're doing for us. Yeah. 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 And the, perhaps you could paint a picture because I think you sort of did it with, you know, talking about the water, uh, like Watergate yeah. with Angus Taylor and a few of the other yeah. things, but perhaps we could dive into a little bit more about like when I think of Australia, I grew up overseas. So I, and I lived in Malaysia where corruption is a real thing. Like there's different yeah. scales of corruption. Um, yeah. and I saw Australia as this place where corruption doesn't really exist so much. Um, that's right. It was, it was. So what's it was it certainly what is the sort of the state what what's 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 the state well, of corruption here in in your opinion well I haven't lived in Malaysia but from what I understand it's every bit as bad um, and the only reason the public don't know about it is because the Murdoch press is hushing it up um, but if you look at even something as simple as the car parks scandal and the sports frauds where and as you say this is perfectly legal. The government takes taxpayer money 
and doles it out to the electorates that they need to win before an election. Now, Benjamin Netanyahu, who's, you know, the, the Israeli prime minister, he's on corruption charges at the moment. And the corruption charges relate to exactly that, using public money uh, to help him win an election by not, by not distributing that according to need or according to the advice he's had from experts and his public service, but according to where it will win him seats. And that's exactly what um, they've done with, uh, with the sports frauds and, 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 uh, and the car parks frauds. Were these rorts done in a way that's like, it's technically legal, but it's just. Yeah, they're, le- they're legal. They're legal. They're legal in Australia. They're not, they're not in the rest of the world, <laughs> you know? So, so they've got a free reign and that's why you need an ICAC that not only, that not only prosecutes things that are illegal, but things that are a breach of duty or a dereliction of duty. So for example, I think the best way to make this point is that slavery, um, apartheid and the Holocaust were all perfectly legal. So the test is not whether something's legal because the government makes their own corruption legal, you know. So we need an ICAC that looks at those things and say, you you guys have, have breached your duty of care to the Australian people, legal or not legal, then you're going to go to jail for it. I mean, I mean, it's it's if it gets to the comical sometimes, like in my my seat of North Sydney, uh, the local Liberal Party member Trent Zimmerman. He acquired $10 million for the the upgrade of the North Sydney swimming pool from the rural grants bucket, okay? (laughs) And and when questioned about, you know, how how he could possibly justify that, he said, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of country people that like to come up to North Sydney for a swim. (laughs) Just say stuff like that that's absolutely absurd. Meanwhile, the Bendigo ladies football club that should have got it and they've still got them and their opposition what is it in afl 36 people trying to change in one toilet you know like that's corrupt but but the corruption is much worse than that the watergate and and mm. you know when you were talking about uh help a mate out or what about that airport thing like a donor to the liberal party the government buys land from their own donor pays 10 times the market price but that's just yeah and but abuse of power you know, uh, and dereliction of duty. I mean, they're, they're, they're just as important. If you take something like, so Peter Dutton over the years has taken a, a piece of, and this is perfectly legal, okay, a piece of legislation in the Migration Act that was designed to keep asylum seekers in detention for a couple of weeks so they didn't get lost in the crowd um, whilst they were being processed, okay? He didn't say that, but that was its intention. He's taken that and he's used that to keep people in detention for five, 10, now going on 15 years and with the latest amendment for the rest of their lives if he sees fit. That's all perfectly legal, you know. But how is that any different from from slavery or the concentration camps, you know? Um, And and these detention camps aren't exactly cheap either, are they? Like what's what's, what's like a, it's absurd amounts of money per day per um, prisoner. Billions and billions of dollars. What people, yeah, I think it's something like they're paying like four billion a year to keep people behind asylum seekers behind bars. What and like we're not talking almost, about tens of thousands, we're not, you know, we're not talking about tens of thousands of asylum seekers, we're talking about what you know, a few hundred at most, probably. Like that's, oh, I, I don't know, oh, I'm well, not too familiar it's with it's more the, than people, it's more than people think, it's a few thousand. Okay, um, but you know, the cost. 
but but still four billion dollars to their to their mates who run the detention centres, um, you know, to run absolutely inhuman. I'm a I'm a refugee barrister, you know, so I work in this area and and I go out to Villawood and it, it's it's like walking into a concentration camp and you know that's Villawood compared to I don't know what it's like. I, I've not been to Manus and Nauru and Christmas Island, you know, these these just terrible places. But what people don't know, and only people in the game like myself know, is that Dutton, whilst letting in all sorts of uh, immigrants that may not be to the benefit of Australia, has an obsession with keeping refugees, genuine refugees, out of Australia. People that need our help, he's got an obsession. So he spends, or well, he's not the minister anymore, although I'm sure he, he directs operations, but he was spending another $4 billion a year. That's my estimate, so it could be wrong. could be more, but my estimate, he's spending another $4 billion a year on legal costs to fight the refugee cases through every level of appeal that you can possibly do. So people don't understand that the big five firms of solicitors in Australia have a, have a Peter Dutton department. I don't know what they call it now, you know, where where hundreds of lawyers do nothing but work full-time on trying to keep asylum seekers out of the country. I just thought it was so amusing, not so long ago. So I'm up in the full federal court and I'm representing uh, an asylum seeker with the, with the help of one valiant law student, right? On, on the other side, Dutton has employed uh, one of Australia's leading constitutional QCs, two other barristers and six solicitors, right? So there's... there's there's easily a million dollars just for a half-day hearing in that one case alone. So I, I, I don't mind telling proximity. you we won that, by the way, oh, <laughs> which, was, which is lovely. Yeah, sorry. So on, on that topic, what? so I think historically we've been quite tough when it comes to our borders, to immigration. Um, what do you think is a, given your you know proximity to the problem, what do you think is a reasonable solution? Well, the solution is always there and it's right before our eyes and the trouble is that, the politicians obfuscate it and create fears that don't exist and make it seem like an incredibly complex situation. It's not. We have laws. They're not the best laws in the world, and I've, we've got lots of proposals to make them better and, and more efficient and cheaper and all the rest of it. But the laws are there. And you turn up in Australia, and, it doesn't, and those laws say fundamentally you turn up in Australia um, doesn't matter how you turn up in Australia. If you turn up in Australia and you say, I'm seeking asylum, you should get put through a process of tribunals and courts. And at the end of the day, a final decision should be made as to whether you are a genuine refugee or not a genuine refugee. And that has a very clear definition. If you have a well-founded fear of persecution, if returned to your country, um, you're a refugee. If you don't, you're not, you know, and that's for the courts to decide, like they decide anything else. Um, and if they say you're a refugee, then we, we keep you and we look after you. If they say you're not a refugee, you get sent home. Now, that's a really simple system and used to operate very simply in the past before particularly Howard and, and others started to demonise because it's an old trick, of course, to demonise the, the most downtrodden in society. Now, as far as the boats go, and they, they, they confuse the issue by saying, oh, well, we have to put people in detention to deter the people smugglers who will put them on boats. Meanwhile, by the way, the people smugglers are bringing in tens of thousands of people by plane. But anyway, um, we have to deter them, you know, because and keeping people in detention will deter them. 
Of course, what they don't, well, what they realise, but what the public doesn't realise is that's no deterrent at all. If you're a people smuggler, you don't give a bugger what happens to the people you're smuggling at the other end. Even, even if you know, you just don't care. And you usually have ill-educated people that turn up looking for your help and you say, well, we'll take you to Australia on a boat and it's the best place in the world and they don't know any different. So that's no deterrent at all because it's unknown to people. What the deterrent is, is that the Navy is out in the Indian Ocean turning back boats. That's the deterrent. And insofar as people come by, by boat, I, we acknowledge that that's a dangerous thing to do. But the solution to that is very simple. You go to Indonesia where a lot of people turn up and you process them there and you deal with them there and you, and you enter into proper negotiations with Indonesia so that they're not having to bear the burden of people turning up on them. You share that with them. You take the burden off them. They assist you to make sure that it's all done. And just like in Australia, if they're real refugees, you bring them over and settle them. If they're not real refugees, you send them home. It is a very, very simple system that, as I say, politicians have perverted for their own evil in trying to demonise a class of people. And it's very easy to demonise refugees because you'd understand there's a primitive fear in people that goes right back to, you know, we're in a, we're in a village 20,000 years ago and there's, there's 20 of us and we are scratching a living to get by. Uh, we never know whether we're going to survive from one day to the next. And a guy turns up at our village who's been thrown out of his own village five kilometres down the road and says, please take me in. And you, and you start thinking, oh, my God, if we take him in, you know, we've got barely enough food for us, you know, how are we going to survive? And that sort of fundamental fear still, still sits in the gut of a lot of people and it's very easy for unscrupulous politicians to tap into that. And, of course, in the modern world, none of that applies. You know, we have, we have a bounty that can, uh, can care for people. And, of course, what's, what's the that other thing? in the national anthem? Boundless plans uh, to share. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other thing that's ignored is, of course, that refugees, uh, if you give them a decent shake, are very, very grateful for having another chance at life and usually turn out to be the hardest working most productive, productive members of society. You know, yeah. America, the, the American dream, the American empire was built on them taking, you know, uh, we take in the huddled masses, it says on the bottom of the Statue of Liberty, you know. It's a terrible system from all points of view and there's a lot of pain, a lot of unnecessary pain and suffering, people taking their own lives, children being very sick and un, untended. Yeah, we just saw that um, recently. Someone, one of them had to be flown into... Perth, I think, uh, for hospital treatment because yeah. she wasn't getting enough uh, good enough treatment on the on the island. It's shocking. It's yeah. shocking given that yeah. like we are this lucky, you know, we're referred to as the lucky country where you know one of the richest countries in the world, and yet we let these things happen. It's yeah. a, we're in many ways a nation without a conscience, and because of the media control, it's kind of not as it's not brought to light as much as as, as really need that's right uh, needs to be the case. That's right, and we'll we'll bring it to light, and there'll be a lot of people that will hate us for it, but it has to be done. You know, it has to be rectified. We we can't go, you know, already people will look back on us just as they look back on slavery and apartheid and say, how, how could how could they have done that? Yep. I'd like to talk a little bit about the I, I've I've heard it referred to as a black elephant. So have you have you heard of a black swan? The black swans yes. are those events that you don't know are coming and then they come out of nowhere and then upend everything. Oh, okay. A black elephant is Oh, no, I didn't know, know that. Is, okay, yeah. So, But a black elephant is something that you know is there 
but you are ignoring it and you just hope it'll go away. Right. And then it comes in and right. you know destroys everything. And that black elephant <laughs> is the, is climate change. Um, oh. And I, I know, I, I think a lot of us are kind of sick of hearing about it and feeling the effects of it uh, every single day. At least that's, that's how it feels. Yeah. Um, so yeah, absolutely. We, we are among the worst. We are now at the bottom of the UN climate. I, I don't remember. I think it was the UN climate action ladder. We are at the bottom. And yeah. um, the, our yeah. environmental minister um, lobbied against UNESCO to stop the Great Barrier Reef being listed as endangered. I think oh, to do, I, yeah. I, I'm pretty sure to do that, she actually flew to these nations. Like, she did. She lobbied. She, she did. flew, burning all these fossil fuels in a pandemic to be like, "Look, please and help I, us not." How get did she, How did she do it? How did she do it? You know, I've asked people, "How do you convince all those countries?" And they say, "Well, you carry a bag of cash," you know, and. It's the only explanation. How do you convince all these countries to vote against this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and she's also stopping kids from holding. Some children are suing her on like the environmental. Yes, I don't they know su- who they're suing, but yeah, they you can just- they, Yeah, they succeeded in the federal court in in suing the environment minister for breach of her duty of care to to them as young people because she's setting them up for. A devastating future, and they won. I she's think appealing that is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah, she's appealing that, and she won because the case came before a very uh, one of the great progressive judges in the federal court, um, who would be a person that was concerned about this. Uh, now they probably won't. You know, she, the minister, will win on appeal probably, but even if she doesn't, she'll take it to the high court, where she will certainly win. And this is another. This is another aspect of how does she have the time to do all this when you know things are so dire? You know, it does I, I don't like you. You've got experience here. Like, how much time does a court case take? Is well, it, does it disrupt one's life? I'd assume it would interfere oh, with her I ability guess, to do I guess, her job. I guess it it doesn't dis- disrupt her life because okay. she sends all her lackeys to worry about the the bits and pieces. So she gets on with other things like you know lobbying for more fossil fuels kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the reason why, I mean, there's obviously reasons why I want to talk about this and it's, mm. you know, very front of mind uh, and increasingly sure. so we've seen the floods across the, across the world, uh, fires, yeah. Greece is burning, Australia burned. Uh, there's, yeah. there's so much going on. Um, but it's also a, it's for us, it's a big economic question as well, because we, one of our major exports is coal, or we, you know, we export like one of our major exports is fossil fuels and other things that contribute to climate change, like uh, livestock, for instance. Right. So a lot of our uh, exports are sort of fossil fuel uh, intensive or, or fit into this. And I feel like both of our uh, both parties kind of have their head, head in the sand and do not realize the green economy with which we are moving towards. To I mean, well, the world is moving towards to, and that we have such a tremendous opportunity ahead of us. Yeah, um, we, yeah. we could be a, an energy superpower. We could be a carbon sequestration superpower. This could be huge for our economy. And yeah. they're not Absolutely. talking about that. Um, so I'm just curious, like, what do you like? What are your thoughts on energy policy on the future of Australian industry? Because we are a continent with we are one of the sunniest continents in the world. We have more uranium than most countries as well. So if we want to go nuclear, that like that potential is there. We have all of these. Mm. We could we could provide Southeast mm. Asia with with it, with power, right? So I feel like mm. there are all these opportunities which we are absolutely bungling. And yeah. I'm curious, what's the new liberal yeah. uh, take on this? 
oh, well, it's we see it as totally absurd. And even the argument that we make a lot of money from exporting coal, that's dying. You know, it's dying because people don't want it because the rest of the world wants to move to, to uh, renewable energy. So that's, that's a big lie. And in fact, the fossil fuel industry is losing money and that's why our government pays them, what is it, $12 billion a year to, to, to prop them up. They're not, they're not making money. You know, so that's a that's a big lie. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, we have all the natural potentials to being a world leader in in renewable energies, including the talent. And and you see that that industry leads. So Mike Cannon Brooks, for example, he he's done a he's deal. He's the CEO with of Atlassian. Yeah, he's done a deal with Singapore um, to provide. I'm not sure whether it's solar energy or wind energy. Um, this is in the Northern Territory, right? It's solar. I think it's solar power that's shipped off to Singapore. This happened a couple of months ago. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so Singapore, Singapore will be able to go totally green thanks to Mike Brooks' efforts on uh, on renewable energies and uh, which he will, you know, he will make the electricity. I mean, I'm not an expert on how these things physically happen, but, you know, as lay people, we, we understand as... He'll make the electricity here through solar or wind or whatever he does, and he'll pump it, yeah. <laughs> pump it to Singapore, and you know the lights in Singapore will run on green energy provided by Australia, and Australia's not getting a look in at it. It's <laughs> it's farcical. Yeah, you mentioned talent. You mentioned talent and how we have yeah. some of the you know the greatest talent in the world, yeah. Um, yeah. and you know we've got great universities, but a lot of our good people oh, yeah. leave. Yeah, well, we've got a we've got a policy to reverse that. They leave in all sorts of areas. So, as you say, um, some of the greatest minds. I mean, we've got we've got um, our senior policy advisor on economics, uh, Professor Stephen King. He is he's been called one of the uh, two or three most astute economic minds in the world. Richard Hames, who's our uh, advisor on foreign affairs. Um, I think Forbes magazine or somebody said he was one of the the five best thinkers on the planet. Um, you know, they're advising us. They live outside Australia. <laughs> you know, it's just it's just ridiculous. They're Australians and they live outside Australia. Um, we we can we we have the infrastructure there for for the universities who are dying, um, and I think they're dying because the major political parties are threatened by knowledge. They don't want knowledge and wisdom spread because if knowledge and wisdom is spread, then there may be questions raised about them. It's in their interest to dumb down the population. What we want to do is we want to get it back to the the Whitlam idea of um, free tertiary education. So for a first degree, at least, Mm -hmm. um, and also for a second degree, if it's a professional degree like a a JD or or um, uh, an MD, uh, and and then invest heavily. See, if we're going to be the smart nation and the, the lucky country and all the rest of those cliches that get thrown around, we've got, you know, bring back people like our two advisors that I just mentioned and tens of thousands of others and give them the money they need to do the research they want to do inside Australia, which, of course, not only means that the universities are, are then not dependent on having to bring in foreign students. 
well, there's nothing wrong with bringing in foreign students, but you don't want to be dependent on it, as we saw in the in the COVID situation. What did they lose? I think uh, you said lost five hundred million a year. I think that's how much the Chinese or the foreign students are bringing yeah. in annually. That's a that's yeah. a big number. It's insane. And then and then you know give them the equivalent amount of money by way of grants to their researchers, um, which then is going to you know. So let's say we let's say we want to let's say we want to be. Let's say we say to Mike Cannon Brooks, please give us give your own country what what you've given to Singapore, and and you know tell us who you want to come back and research at the universities to create all the technology you need, and we'll do that. Um, and then we become a country that is not only a smart country, but you know if you have to plead economics, it's a good thing in itself to save the planet. You don't need to plead more beyond that. But if you do need to plead more beyond that, it's also good economics, you know? The returns to R&D are huge. Like you don't like, it's, it's just tough because, yeah. you know, when, you, when you're doing research, yeah. but in particular, you know, science, yeah. you don't know what the consequences are going to be. But, you know, look, no, we right. do fundamental that's physics right. research and now we've got, you know, 50 years later, yeah. quantum computers on the way, right? Which could completely yeah, blow right. away conventional computing. Like, you know, their orders of magnitude better than what we've got right now and they are on the way. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. So... Like I said towards the beginning, it is early days, right? So it's all well and good having these ambitions for what Australia could look like, but a lot mm. needs to happen now mm. and over the next you know, year, oh, yeah. next few years to actually get yeah. there. So what are some of the biggest yeah. challenges um, that you guys are facing at the moment? Um, like what are your, like what are the short-term ambitions? Like what are the challenges you're facing? Um, yeah. And what, what would you sort of like to achieve over the next, um, let's say six to 12 months? Well, what I'd like to achieve is th throw out, throw all those crooks out and run the government ourselves. Is that realistic? Probably not. But, you know, there is just the faintest chance it may happen because when people hear what we're saying, when we get exposure, um, we have, a you know, a remarkably high acceptance rate amongst people that, that, that hear what our policies are and hear what we're planning to do. Because the sort of the sort of desperation that drove us to to form this party is the sort of desperation that lives in the hearts of most Australians, I think. So, but still, if everything went well, I think this this is what this is what we plan to do realistically. So we're a progressive party. Um, some people call us centrist. Some people call us right of centre. Some people call us left of centre. I find those terms these days fairly useless. I mean, is it is it left wing to want to save the planet? Is it is it left wing to want to pull the three million people below the poverty line above the poverty line? Is it left wing to to want to stop corruption? Is it left wing to want to have a, a defence policy that suits your country rather than another country? You know, like these are these are silly questions, but. Wherever we are, we are we are sitting. Uh, we are drawing people in. Um, at the moment, although this is changing, so this is fascinating too. But at, at, up till very recently, we were quite naturally drawing in uh, what they call the moderate, disaffected liberal voter. So people that you know are well healed, got a good education, live on the north shore of Sydney or in East Melbourne or something like this you know, um, and and who have voted for the Liberal Party gen generationally, but who who actually hate the Liberal Party now. Um, 
My brother-in-law, by the way, is a classic example of this. So his father was Robert Menzies' press secretary. So he's got a long liberal lineage, you know, and he's a big macho bloke who was in tears, literally in tears before the last election, saying those bastards have stolen my party. Um, these people, you know, sure, they're well-held and well-educated, but they can't see much point of that if there's no planet for their kids to live on, you know. So they despise the Liberal Party, but they, they vote for them through clenched teeth because they don't see that they have an alternative. Well, now they see that they have an alternative. Um, I think we also have our policies are way more progressive, or if you need to use the term, way to the left of the Labor Party. But many, many disaffected Labor voters don't quite realise who we are yet because they get bamboozled by the word liberal in our name. You know, we're a real Liberal Party, but they have been taught to understand that liberal means conservative, which is absurd because everywhere else in the world, they are the polar opposites of one another. So it's going to take us a little longer. But I was, I was starting to say the funny thing is that in the last month only, 70% uh, of new members have come uh, from the disaffected Labor Green side of things. So we might be, you know, getting through to them now. But, but we think first time round the logical thing to do for a party like us with limited resources is run where we've got our best chance, and our best chance is in about three dozen um, Liberal-held seats, uh, mainly in the, in the capital cities, and, and run in the Senate. Now, the way... The experts describe it as they say, you know, we could take 20% of the vote, most of which would come from those disaffected moderate liberal voters. Um, and if preferences fell the way they should, we could take up to three dozen seats in the lower house. Now, I think realistically that's not going to happen because I think first time around anything that can go wrong will go wrong for us and you need to look at it that way. But there is a real chance that we could take three or four or five lower house seats off the Liberal Party. Now, if we do that, um, then we'll hold the balance of power. And if we hold the balance of power in the lower house, probably to a minority Labor government, then, you know, we, we can have a term of making sure that they do the right thing. Um, and hopefully if people see us sticking to our principles and making sure they do the right thing, they will see us as a proper alternative government and then next time round uh, we will get into power. Now, that's that would be a short rise to, to stardom, if you like, um, but we don't have time to do it long term for the reasons that you've raised. I mean, Greta Thunberg came out yesterday, I think, and said, you know, you suckers have got five years. Don't kid yourselves. You know, if you don't do it in five years, well, the very best we can do is get into government in five years, you know. Um, but hopefully, if we can hold the balance of power by next May, when I think the election will be, then we'll have five years where we say, yeah, you want, you want that piece of legislation to get through? We'll start fixing the, the planet, you know, um, and quite literally and shamelessly hold them to ransom. Um, because if that's the only way it can be done, then that's the way it should be done. Mm. Unfortunately, this whole climate thing has been politicized far more than it needs yeah. to be. And, you know, the, the government, every time any government jumps on the news uh -huh. and says, well, you know, with the vaccine rollout or with the lockdowns, we're listening to the best science advice. You know, we're listening to the science. They'll say that in one breath and then, you know, climate change. <laughs> That's a great, like, that's a great what, point. What yeah. science? What science? Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, it's been, it's been politicized and, 
what strikes me as quite bizarre is that to be against, I, I mentioned this when I spoke to Will Steffen about the climate change and the threat of collapse, mm. that I see climate in action as actually un-Australian because we have such an attachment to our land, to our waters, mm. the farmers, mm. you know, the Murray Darling, mm. to summer sport mm. um, and to not and, and to, you know, growing yeah. up, I thought as an Australian, you know, we, we like we like to be the underdog and to come up and, and win. Right. And then mm. when it when, when it comes to emissions, we're like, oh, well, we are only one percent of the world's emissions. We only give out one percent of the world's emissions. You know, other countries are doing so much more than that. Like, that's not how we do things. We're like, oh, they're doing more. No. Well, we, we, we uh, like I think of us as, you know, I could be I might be wrong here, but we just like to go above and beyond and be better um, well, regardless that, of our it, size. We used to, we used to. And, you know, I think that the, the, the real powerful metaphor somebody said the other day for this is when the uh, Allies called on Australia to go and fight Hitler in the Second World War, did we say, oh, we'll only make up 2% of the army, so what's the point of us going? Because our contribution will be minimal, so we're just going to stay home. No, we did what was right, you know, and... First of all, I think there are several aspects to this. So we should do what's right, whatever the percentage is. Um, but secondly, this idea that we're some sort of tiny, powerless little country, we've now got, what, 26 million people um, and enormous natural wealth. You know, we are not, we are, we are a moderate-sized power if we want to be, you know, so there's a lot we can do. And also because we are an intelligent nation um, that has, you know, been at the forefront of a whole lot of things punching above our weight, if we did a great job, we would be held up as an example, you know, like Sweden and, and Norway are held up and say, look what they're doing in Australia. And that would put pressure on larger countries all around the world. So there's a million reasons why we should be doing it, apart from just the Gut basic logic is why wouldn't you do it? <laughs> why well, it's also you do good it? economically. Like there are so it many green jobs that can come. Yeah. So these that's these, it. these better economic managers that's that are currently yeah. in power at the moment. Oh. It's it's the biggest yeah. fuss. It just yeah. you know it's well, that, so bad it's funny. Yeah. Like, yeah. Um, so bad it's funny. That's that's quite right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess I I think we'll. We'll, we'll wrap up shortly. Um, and I probably yep. should have asked this towards the beginning, but why the new liberals? Why the name? Yeah, why the name? You mean? Oh, the yeah. name. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's all part of that, what I was saying at the beginning, our, our promise to ourselves that we would tell the truth no matter what the consequences were. And knowing one another as we as we do, we knew that we would be creating a, a liberal party. Now, that's a liberal party, as that word is understood around the world and has been for 200 years to mean uh, a party that believes in equality of opportunity and compassion and justice and freedom and those sort of ideals. Um, that's what we were after. And if we balked at telling the truth about who we were because of the obvious problem uh, the elephant in the room that the that the Liberal Party of Australia has taken a perfectly good word and perverted it to mean it's exact opposite of ultra conservative, or as some people say, reactionary, and as some other people say, fascist. Um, you know, if we if we if we caused if we balked at that, I guess, and didn't call ourselves what we knew we were, then the first act would be an act of a lie, and we couldn't do that. Um, so. 
we called ourselves the Liberal Party and we called ourselves the new Liberal Party to make sure that there wasn't any confusion with the old Liberal Party because you can't be new and old at the same time. You can't be York and New York at the same time. That's how it went from there. And, and you know, we, we, bought, we bought a lot of grief at the beginning. Uh, people, there was a lot of people, uh, I mean, uh, my oldest friend, my oldest friend who is now on our national executive, Dr. Michael Glicksman, he rang me up and he said, mate, I'm not going to have anything to do with this bloody party. <laughs> you know? And about two months later, he said, oh, look, I'm really sorry. I've, I've actually looked at what you're about and looks great. Can I come on board? I said, of course. You know, um, so we bought ourselves a lot of grief, but it's turning around now. If you, go on, if you go on Twitter, you know, you'll see it's calling into question the hypocrisy of the Liberal Party of Australia calling itself liberal when it's arch-conservative. Uh, and that's something that people didn't even bother to address before, but they're addressing that in their thousands now uh, on social media and, and elsewhere. So I hope it proves that if you tell the truth, it will eventually come to your benefit, albeit you might cop a few <laughs> beatings before you get there. Yeah, well, I think the beatings come regardless, you know, especially when you're playing yeah, the case. So you may as yeah. well just say whatever helps you sleep at night and Absolutely. be true to yourself. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I think, that, like we said at the beginning of this conversation, um, I think, but also before we went live, just speaking to, like answering questions directly. You know, if someone says, you know, yeah. why did you guys do this? We don't want to hear a two-minute political answer that completely dodges the question. Like that'll... I think that millions of Australians or people around the world, because I think a universal will just roll their eyes and maybe there's a good reason mm. for it. But hearing you say that that's something that you guys will avoid doing. Um, and I think respecting the intelligence of the people listening, I think, yeah. I think it's about a respect for the people. Um, that's very refreshing yeah. and reassuring. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I think I know why, why the politicians do it um, because they want to not commit to anything in case that troubles people you know, uh, troubles a sector of the population. Let's not lose that sector. Let's not lose that sector. So the idea is to give an answer that, you know, pleases this party over here when you're on one program and this party over here when you're on another program and never really commit to anything in case you get held down. And, and it's one of the root causes of the malaise. And if you just tell the truth, then I think... I think you will make you will make enemies if you tell the truth. But as Obama said, if you're in politics and you're not making enemies, you're not doing your job. Um, you'll make enemies, but you will also um, get two other groups. Um, one that really likes to hear uh, what you're saying in the substance of what you're saying because they they've not heard it before because nobody talks about substance. And then there'll be a second group in the middle, I think, and this is what we're finding who don't agree with you, but really respect the fact that you are prepared to say it. And those people are people that will thereafter listen to you. And if you are talking sense as well as truth, as well as your own truth, these are people that may come around. And, and look, as you say, we're, you know, we're, not, we're not career politicians and it would drive us crazy to have to go on with that nonsense. All we want to do is... You know, just answer the question. I, I wouldn't know how to do what the politicians do. I, I, I kind of look in amazement as they dance around saying nothing. Like word, words are coming out of their mouth and I think, how do you do that? How do you produce words? Because, um, you know, ordinary human beings have a real instinct to just you ask a question, you answer it, you know. Uh, anyway. Yeah. 
you know, I, I will just say that I think a lot of them have in their own way, the best intentions. I don't think people are really trying to um, mm. screw people over or do dodgy things. I mm. honestly believe that just about all of them think they're doing the right thing. And perhaps yeah. the labor the labor's like, we need to play this game. We need to work Absolutely. like this so that we can get the votes. Absolutely. And then when we're in, we can change things. Yeah. And yeah. I, perhaps yeah. that's true. Perhaps that's true. And, but I want to believe that it's not. Well, I, I think that I it's, think, I think yeah. if, if there's people yeah. like you and, you know, people based on what the fact that we can have this conversation and that you can talk straight to me um, and yeah. everyone else, Mm. does a lot it does a lot and you know positions are like you're in a, obviously a different position to albo but um yeah. it's refreshing so yeah well thank you thank you i really appreciate you saying that it's really nice um so i think i've got one question um if you had an yeah. almighty megaphone and you could that could blast <laughs> your voice across <laughs> you know the, across the land and you had 30 seconds yeah. um to you know, to be the voice coming down from above, uh, what would you say to the people of Australia? I'd say that if you if you trust in us, we'll get Australia back to where it was uh, and in terms of equality and justice and, and a fair go for everybody and we will take Australia where it's never been through, through innovation um, and caring for the land and establishing us, ourselves as, as world leaders in in the arts, in, in, in intellectual matters, in the universities, in research and in climate, climate, the fight against climate change. Wonderful. That sounds good to me. That sounds good to me. Well, uh, Victor, is there anything else that you'd like to, is, is, do you have any no, answers no. for the audience? Anything you'd like to share before we wrap up? No, I think that's, you know, I think you've covered all the great yeah. stuff. So, yeah. Okay. And if people want to keep up to date, if they want to reach out, if they want to, uh, you know, get updates, uh, where should they? Where can they find you online? Uh, I'll well, put all of the links in the show in the show notes. Thank you. So they'll be there. Yeah. Uh, well, if you if you just Google the New Liberals, um, you you'll get to the website and you'll find out everything about us. I I have my email and I have my phone number on there. So if anybody wants to ring me, please ring me. I think uh, one of the things that I want to be, as long as I can be, is accessible uh, to the people that you you want to. Serve, you know, uh, I think most politicians are too remote. So uh, people take me up on that and they ring me and it's great because every time I talk to a, someone else, I learn something else. So I'm sure they're very that, surprised that as be... well when you pick up the phone. <laughs> like, oh, this is a real number. Okay. <laughs> it is a real number. It's not a trick. <laughs> and if I'm busy, I'll ring you back, you know. All right. Well, Victor, thank you very much for taking the time. Thanks, Sam. I really appreciate it. It was great fun. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. All of the links to things discussed can be found in the show notes, which you can find either in your podcasting app or on my website at samhbarton.com podcast. If you'd like to keep up to date with new episodes and anything else I've got going on, subscribe to my newsletter through my website, follow me on Twitter at samhbarton, and subscribe to my YouTube channel, where you can view all of the podcast episodes as well as the short clips from them. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to share it with whoever you think might love it and consider giving it a review on Apple Podcasts. I've committed to never running ads on this podcast, so if you enjoyed this chat in particular, consider contributing to my coffee fund at paypal.me slash talk of today. Thanks again for listening and until next time, stay curious.